Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Well, we have a real treat this morning. We're going to continue on in our Acts series, and Brett Jensen is actually going to give the message today. Yeah, get... Yes, you should be excited, because Brett is just an awesome guy. Him and his wife, Paige, they lead one of our life groups in their home. Such a heart for ministry and discipleship, and I know that'll come through loud and clear in his message. So, Brett, we're so excited to have you. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I'm not the, quite the same energy as Dave is, so uh, there will be a few less amens, a few less like these numbers. We're going to probably stay right about here and do our best. Uh, today, I want to just start with a question. I want you to think about who are some of the least likely people in your life that you think would come to faith? It's like a weird question because a lot of times we just kind of grow numb to these people and we stop thinking about them. But I want to start with a couple of people that, as I've had time to reflect, like this seem like impossible people. First one who came to my mind was a friend I have named Nolan. Uh, Nolan is one of the best athletes I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, I played baseball with him, and so he, uh, he hit all the home runs. He threw 90 miles an hour. He could still slam dunk a basketball at 30. He's very handsome, and he kind of has the Midas touch. Like, anything he's done has kind of been very successful. He married a, a beautiful woman, and I just, I just would have these conversations with him where doors would open up to talk about faith and it would just feel like success had created this barrier where like nothing really got through, like nothing. It, it seemed like uh, impossible for truth to penetrate the success. Another person, uh, this is more recent. I was, uh, I was at a kid's birthday party. Most of your, your, your time as a father and mother of young kids is like driving them around to different things. Well, this one was a, a particular situation where the adults got to sit together and the kids did this adventure. And uh, this neighbor of mine, was, she was recalling going to a, a very, very conservative Catholic funeral. And while she was there, apparently she was dressed below expectation. She was wearing slacks. And that was inappropriate, apparently, in this scenario. And so her father-in-law made a comment about her being dressed inappropriately at this. And she's an irreligious person, an unchurched person, so it was like, offense upon offense, and uh, she, as she's just talking, you could just feel the, the overwhelming amount of disdain she had for this scenario, and it wasn't just for this 
little wing of uh, Catholicism, it was just for religion. And it, you just think about, I'm sitting here trying to relate, trying to make some common ground, and just realizing, oh my gosh, Lord, like how? How would you ever penetrate these walls that have been built by someone who's felt so judged uh, for such a stupid thing? Uh, but it's like, it's, it's the bricks that people use to build these kind of walls against ever considering faith. The other one I, I was just kind of reminiscing about was my own grandmother. She has is, she is passed away, and, but I remember conversations with her. She, was, uh, she loved, I don't know if anybody's heard of this, but like in late night AM radio, you could listen to this guy named Art Bell who would just do conspiracies. Like essentially... Everything that you ever thought was a historical fact was in fact like you could pull the string on it and it was completely phony. It was just uh, indoctrinated in thinking skeptically about everything. And so you would try to have these reasonable conversations and inevitably out of her kind of indoctrinated life philosophy, you sh she could always just pull the string. And like, how do we know that that's real? How do we know that that's real? And just the like impossibility of trying to communicate to her. And, uh, and I'm sure you have these too, whether it's people who are uber successful and have the Midas touch or have been hurt or affected Offended or judged at some point in their life, but that became like a flagship moment in their hearts. And so it just feels like uh, they only view it through a very skeptical eye or other philosophies or whatever. There's a lot of people that if we're honest with ourselves, like we don't feel like it's possible to reach them. Like there's real people. It, it might be siblings, uh, parents, co-workers, neighbors, etc. And it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge for our hearts because here's what happens. When you don't think someone is possible, you, you tend to grow a little weary and that weariness tends to turn into some numbness and that numbness tends to dampen your prayers. And we no longer believe for people we no longer believe that God could actually fix this scenario. It's like, it's like beyond our logic, so I don't, I don't see a way through. And the weariness leads to numbness, leads to prayerlessness for a lot of people in our lives. And that's just real. Like, and, and, I, and I bet if you started to comb your heart, you would go, I, I have some of those relationships. Some of that has kind of worn on me too. We are going to be in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, and this is uh, a testimony of God reaching the most hostile person in the ancient world to Christianity. And it's relevant because there was no breaking through to this person. 
And at first we're going to think, oh, well, there was just a miraculous encounter. But the fact of the matter is there was pre-work that God was doing leading up to the moment where Saul, who became Paul, met Jesus face to face and changed. And it's good for us. Because, like, we need to see these testimonies of impossible people, people who we don't see a way through, are in fact the Spirit of God is working on behind the scenes that we can't see, and there are no impossible people. Every conversion story, whether it's someone who grew up in church their entire life or lived completely irreligious, every conversion story is an act of God. Every single one. And if we were to go through the room and ask each other, like, tell me your story, there will always be this, it's a little different than you expected. There are, there are, there are these crisis moments where God meets you. Like, like, like Paul on the road to Damascus, and something happened that seemed not possible prior. So we're going to open up the book of Acts, I'm going to try to catch us up to speed where we're at, and we're going to witness the impossible, like something that, that should not have existed. So before we read the text, here's, here's where we're at. Acts chapter 8, to understand it, to get it, you have to know what happened in Acts chapter 7. And if you've, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 is a giant sermon from uh, Stephen, Stephen, who became the first Christian martyr. If you read it, it's fairly nuanced, but he's giving uh, essentially a, a speech prior to the Sanhedrin, right? The, the people who are in charge, the rulers, the elites, the, it was like a, a religious governing body, and he's saying, hey, this is, this is where we've gone wrong. It's long. It's like 50 verses. It's word for word. It's kind of crazy that we have a record of it. And it ends in his execution, and then what we learn is the presiding person, uh, the presiding official who was there, kind of like at the forefront, was a man named Saul. And that is where we run into verses 1 through 3. So here's what it says. It says, on that day, so this is post this stoning and martyrdom of Stephen. It's like a continuous thought. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So this is the first recorded great persecution of the church. And it's weird to think about. You've got to kind of like unpack it. But it was so dangerous to live in Jerusalem. People left homes. They left businesses. They potentially left like kind of family members who were not uh, converted to Christianity. And so just imagine. They all left like refugees because it was too dangerous for them and their families to live in Jerusalem. Like, that is crazy. And uh, the grand inquisitor, we learn, was Paul, or Saul. 
going house to house. Now, we don't know. Maybe this was literally, he was reading the rosters at the synagogue and like chasing down individuals. Or perhaps house to house is a reference to the early church met in houses, somewhat like a life group. And so these were maybe focal points and maybe he was you know, like the Gestapo breaking into these meetings and dragging people to prison. It was terrifying to be in Jerusalem. And it wasn't cowardice. We, we get nothing to, to leave. Now what's crazy is that the apostles were like, hey, what's up? Why don't you want you come in our house? But I don't, it doesn't give us any context, but it makes you wonder like, hey, why don't you go after the leader, Saul, if you're such a, you know, a tough guy. Um, but as we read through the rest of chapter 8, we see there were some unforeseen uh, circum- or happenstance that happened because of this great persecution. What man intended for like evil, God you know, used for good, and you get to see the spread of the gospel into other cultures. And we get a spotlight specifically on Samaria. Samaria is just north of Israel, and, and, and honestly, like huge hostility with Israel was seen as a counterfeit version of Judaism. And we get these beautiful stories of like it going, the, the way, the Christian way, going town to town and people believing and changing. And so this is like, it's almost like God blew the dandelion and the seeds spread all over and it started taking root everywhere. And that's what like kind of the rest of chapter 8 is about. But as we'll notice, notice in the verse, Saul is at the center of this persecution. It says, he began to destroy the church, you know, almost like took it upon himself. He had such zeal for the traditions of Judaism. The way he would have viewed this is he is on a crusade to weed out these, this cult from defiling his pure religion. Right? That's how they would have thought about it. Like this is an evil that needs to be weeded out so that it doesn't corrupt what is true. So let's pick it up in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. It says, uh, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Um. Okay, so just for context, Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. I don't know why that city was pinpointed. Uh, I don't even understand maybe like the jurisdiction they had to, to, to get papers to go to synagogues. Uh, it, it's a strange reality, but he thought, you know what, let's go. We got maybe this Jerusalem situation under control. Let's go on the week long journey, 150 miles, to see if we can capture any more Christians. It's, if nothing else, it shows how certain Paul felt about his position. 
Like that this is an evil that needs to be taken care of at any cost, and I am willing to do maybe what other people aren't willing to do. Verse 3, he says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And if you, if you continue reading through uh, chapter 9, you hear about a man, Ananias, being called to pray for Saul. Holy Spirit comes. And you get this fairly dramatic change in Saul's life. And then from there on, his name is Paul. <clears throat> Excuse me, Paul throughout Scripture. But boom, one moment. One moment, and it seems as if his whole world is flipped upside down. He doesn't have to ask a lot of questions. There's no Bible studies involved. It's this encounter with God completely flips his life upside down. Now, this story is kind of unique. If you're familiar with kind of these appearances in Scripture, typically it's not. Typically it's an angelic being. Most commonly, Gabriel. Uh, everything else is fairly similar. We're like, uh, the encounter can be for one person, and one person can understand, and, and this, this thing is very unique, but part of the early church, uh, to be an apostle, one of the credentials was you had to meet, you had to be assigned by Jesus. You had to, you had to actually witness him, and uh, you had to be directly commissioned, and we get this right here. Uh, Paul talks about his kind of, him being kind of the, 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 the late edition apostle. But notice what Jesus says. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay, so, you know, Paul's going around. He's trying to take out these cultists. And he learns that, no, it was actually Jesus he was persecuting, ultimately. And what's good for us to know is, like, this is how closely Jesus identifies with those who follow him. He sees our trials persecutions, tribulations, pain as unto himself. That he's not like some distant deity who doesn't care, doesn't know, doesn't see, but he personally uh, feels associated with it. What's really unique about this conversion story is as you read through the book of Acts, Paul retells it multiple times. So he tells it in chapter 22 as he's trying to kind of testify uh, to this giant body of, of Jews. And then in chapter 26, he gets the audience of a king, and he gets to kind of shape it again. And he says something that's pretty unique in chapter 26, and he's, he adds a little light to this conversation with Jesus. In verse 14, it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, which is an interesting addition. Kicking against the goads. This is an illustration that would have been very common in that culture. 
It's a picture of a stubborn ox trying to be led by a farmer through the fields to plow and being goaded with a stick to continue moving forward. And if the goat, or I'm sorry, if the bull would kick, it could, you know, because out of annoyance for this goat, it could actually hurt itself worse. You know, as it kicks, it could be stabbed worse. And this is this picture of Jesus trying to, to nudge Paul forward, and he's been kicking against this kind of pre-work that Jesus had been doing in Paul's life. Now, people wonder, what, it, what was this? What was this pre-work? Because this seems somewhat like a foreign thing. This seems as if the first interaction that Saul and Paul had had. But there were things that God had been doing leading up to this moment. Uh, some scholars believe, hey, that, you know, Jesus, he preached very publicly. It would have been hard for Paul to be uh, a Jewish scholastic around Jerusalem and not heard or been familiar with the teachings of Jesus. But something I think that is kind of interesting is this. So the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. We learn that Luke was part of Paul's traveling band. And so if we think about this, how did Luke get word for word what Stephen said in chapter 7? So Luke, you know, it's, it's weird to get 50 verses of a sermon, uh, almost word for word what was said, unless there was a first person account. And maybe this first person account was from Saul, who heard Stephen's words and was very troubled by it. That though he hated what was said, it makes you wonder, did he stay up at night after hearing this and wonder, I don't know how to refute this. It just makes me very angry. And so perhaps Luke's account is from Saul. And that those were some of the most goading moments from God to try to nudge Saul forward, closer to choosing Jesus. I say this because as we think about these impossible people in our life, it can seem as if they, are, they aren't even close to, to neutral. That they, they, they may feel like they are very opposed, and yet we can be confident that, that Jesus has been nudging, prodding, goading in an unseen way in their lives possibly for years. And I say this and I'm, I want to relate it to my story because this, this is so easy to reflect from when you have uh, the hindsight of what happened in your own life. And you might be able to do this too. So I was, as a young man, probably one of the, many people would have considered one of the most impossible people to come to Christ, mostly because I disdained Christianity so much. Uh, when I was a young man, uh, if you don't grow up in church, you, you, can, you can feel like an outsider for a lot of reasons. And the, the idea that so many people had adopted this at such a young age, it made me feel like it was kind of mindless, that people just kind of adopted it out of a, a cultural or a familial, a familial kind of reason. And the, and the, and the doctrine seems so far-fetched to me on the outside, like such a fairy tale. 
for a God to resurrect in, in, in these, these miraculous stories. And there are a couple examples of like, I would say moderate, mild maybe, hypocritical behavior I saw when I was in high school from a couple professing Christians. And I just latched onto them because I didn't, I wanted as much evidence as I could not to believe, to prove others wrong. And so just hunting for things that felt hypocritical. And I was not like a bystander. I was a fairly aggressive, uh, at times mocking, uh, uh, in my disdain for Christianity. And there's a a particular guy that I knew in college. His name was Mike. He was a a baseball player as well. And he went to a a private Christian high school. So I, I knew he had all these roots to him. And man, if I thought there was a contradiction or something I didn't like, I would just like come at him. And it, it didn't even matter how like humble or just how he stood his ground. It, he was like, my, I, was tar- I would target him with my animosity. And that's where I came from. That's, that's, that's what I had building up in me. I wasn't neutral. I was hostile. Okay, so what were these goading moments? Okay, so I had these couple weird encounters. One was, in this time, I was in college, I was on a plane one time, and I, I sat down next to somebody with their Bible out reading, a young man, probably, uh, uh, probably around my age, and I, was, I had this kind of like confidence to challenge people at that time, and so I kind of said, you know, believe in that stuff? And uh, he was not shook. He was not shook. He said, hey, you know what? Why don't you just say the prayer? Jesus, if you're real, why will you show me? And it didn't matter like how aggressive or kind of arrogant I was. He stood his ground and he just threw that out there. And you know what? I did. I literally went home and said, all right. If you're real, Jesus, show yourself. Isn't that weird? I mean, that is a weird thought, that that's, that is what happened. Um, later, I had been in one of these, like, really pumped up, aggressive conversations with, with this, this guy, Mike, and I felt like I just whooped him, and I was feeling pretty good about myself, and I go in, and I'm kind of telling this he was one of my best friends, grew up Catholic, wasn't even honestly like that serious about it. I was kind of relating it to him, and he goes, you know what, Brett, like, someday you're going to meet Jesus, and you're not going to have a thing to say. And I was like, whoa. You're supposed to be on my side, like, whoa. Where did this boldness come from? And it was so out of the box, it like stuck with me. And it created uncertainty inside of my kind of skepticism. And there, these are these kind of goading moments where, where yet, yeah, I think from the outside, what appeared like this dude lost cause, and yet there were these pre-working moments that the Spirit of God was kind of like jarring, taking down things inside of me. 
my story of faith kind of like as it moves forward, uh, it involves, uh, I'm going to give you the short story because this is going a little bit long and it, it doesn't necessarily reinforce the point, but I, uh, I was partying at a very conservative Christian college, which could have dire consequences. You could get kicked out of school, basically. And there was enough kind of heat on the baseball team about this where our coach shut down the fall baseball program and said, hey, listen, whoever's doing this, like, you got to stop. Well, I quit. I quit partying because I was really, really afraid of losing baseball. That's, that's, that's the truth. And so I had this, this opening in my social calendar. And the only dudes I knew who didn't party were like this group of three or four guys who were pretty serious about their faith but very relatable. And so I started hanging out with them. And one day, a, a guy who became a dear friend of mine named Rob told his story about how he grew up his whole life essentially addicted to marijuana. And... So much so that from the age of 13 to like 22, he, he, he was like the dude who like, you go to his house and there's, you know, incense burning and he kind of smells of patchouli and like, you, if, you've, if you've been around that bro, like, there's a certain culture to it. And he said, literally just reading the Bible had changed his life had renovated his life in such a way in which he had the strength to quit this addiction. And he finished with, and I've never been happier in my life. And he was an incredible person to me. And that was an incredible story. And so I remember walking out and thinking to myself, who doesn't want to be happier? And I can read a book. And that's what happened. I read a book for about three or four weeks. I, I read the scriptures on my own. And then I had a Damascus Road evening, you know, in my, in my apartment, in my bedroom by myself, where essentially all the weight of my misdeeds was kind of on me. And I just remember going, all right, Jesus, you're the God who forgives. I have trouble forgiving myself for this stuff. If you'll forgive me, I'll believe. And this almost like, warrior against Christianity found himself like this. Like, I don't know where else to go. And it completely changed my life. In fact, I went to, I went to In-N-Out Burger with this, this friend of mine who was a very committed Christian, and I was trying to communicate that I had chosen Christ, and I literally had to say it four or five times because he was like, it wasn't processing that someone like me could do that. And uh, that's, that's what it was like. And I was impossible in a lot of people's minds, and yet God had this pre-work going, and also, like, my foundation wasn't as strong as I thought it was. The conclusion of this, like, this conversion story in the book of Acts is, is, as I mentioned, it's that zeal that led uh, Saul or Paul to chase down and try to destroy the church became reoriented. And he became kind of one of the strongest leaders in the early church in taking that same zeal to spread the gospel. His passion turned almost overnight 
And Paul's not the only impossible person we read through Scripture who comes to faith. You know, there's, there's, there's stories of Roman centurions, right? People who, who have a completely different perspective and a militant in, in all these disadvantages who seem to open their heart to Christ. We know uh, the women of the night, the, 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 the prostitutes, women, people who have lived incredibly sinful lives and feel the shame for it, and yet they find a, a new life in Jesus. Or tax collectors like Zacchaeus, people who were outcasts in their society because they were thought of as so evil, like turncoats. And yet those people came to Christ as well. And we need these reminders because we can grow skeptical. You know, we can, we can get on a, a path for people for years where we're actively trying to, to communicate, to relate, to build trust, to bring, to see the gospel bear it. But honestly, like we can grow weary. And that weariness can create some skepticism in our hearts. And this is what this unseen, hidden thing where we start to believe, you know, they're never going to change. I can't see a way through. Skepticism kills hope and expectation, and the belief that the same Christ who met Saul on the road could actually come ablaze in somebody's heart. And that's just kind of what happens as we're on this pilgrimage with Christ, walking and trying to rally people along, that we can get worn down. And when all that happens, it's hard to pray. It's hard to believe for people. Right? Active faith is believing in Jesus, but it is also believing the scriptures in, in for people. That no, God, you are, are at work in people's lives. Like there are things going on that I can't see. I, and I almost guarantee that people have things burned in the back of their mind that sometimes they wonder about. That just like me on the plane, well, the guy's saying, why don't you just, why don't you just ask God to show himself? And the most skeptic of skeptics, they will. There, there's uncertainty. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need it. As we go weary or numb or skeptical or whatever, whatever however you want to articulate it. We need to know hope in other people's lives. Hope is believing that the unseen God is at work in the hearts of people in our life. They may be kicking against the goads, but there is a great pursuer in their lives, and we need to trust it. And at the end of the day, just know the fact that no one is impossible. You go through the people in your life, brother, sister, parents, uh, co-workers, angry neighbors, uh, hostile, whatever, and know that you know that you know that no one is impossible. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this testimony. And this is not just a one-off that you did one time back in 
you know, the ancient world where you showed up so that this one person could have a huge impact. That every single conversion story is an act of God. Every single one. And I pray for us that we would have living, active faith to the people in our lives and shed off kind of our skepticism, kind of peel back the calluses and start believing for people that when we interact, when we take steps of faith, when we communicate, that there is uh, there's impact. That, Spirit, you do things with our words and our actions that we cannot see. And I pray we would be a more hopeful people. I pray that we would be a more prayerful people. And that just understand, like, nobody's impossible. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.